Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for joining our webcast today. As you know, the Association of Value-Based Cancer Care is responsible for information and dialogue in our ecosystem across all stakeholder groups. This ensures that patients will win on access and quality. We need to constantly improve and change our tactics and our deliverables in cancer care. This is why we hold these webcasts. This is why you're dialing in. We have key opinion leaders, the influencers, the important decision makers who are driving change in our ecosystem. Please join us, participate, ask questions, and offer your voice too. It's hugely important. So thank you for joining. We look forward to participating with you more. Stay safe. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. My name is Nisha Griffith. Here with me today, I have Bhavesh Shah from Boston Medical Center and Scott Frieswick from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. We are providing this podcast as a follow-up to a webinar that we recently held talking about oncology, pharmacy, and COVID. And specifically, this podcast is going to focus on two of those subjects that we felt were worth highlighting past the podcast. And the title of our podcast today is COVID Impact on Oncology Pharmacy, Vendor Lessons Learned and Unexpected Consequences Related to Payer Policies. So again, thank you for joining us and thank you Scott and Bavesh for making the time to meet with us today. I'd like to kick it off primarily talking about our various vendors that we dealt with during the pandemic. And I think one of the things we focused on in the past is what our experiences were and what do we learn from that. And I'd like us to take a, a little bit of a spin on that and focus primarily on helping everyone to understand our struggles and our lessons learned, but potentially how we might work with our vendors to help us in the event of another pandemic or similar situation where access to drugs becomes challenging for multiple reasons. So Scott, I know you were in the epicenter of all of this when it first right. hit. I'd love for you to just start us off by talking about what did you learn? What were the biggest struggles that you had there in New York City and how might our wholesalers and manufacturers and other vendors that you deal with help us moving forward? Thanks, Nisha. So actually, yeah, so during COVID, it was definitely a scary time. In the beginning, when New York City was surging with patients, a lot of the unknown, you know, how much drug we're going to use, how much drug do we need for the critical care meds. So it was a challenge to understand what our burn rate was and how our vendors, our wholesalers, could meet our needs. Because quickly we learned that there was not enough drug in our wholesalers. We knew we needed drugs like propofol and midazolam and other key drugs for ventilated patients, and it wasn't available. So we quickly had to pivot and rely on our direct accounts that we have with a lot of the generic drug companies. And that really saved us and helped us get through the rough few weeks of the pandemic. I remember one of the things that you said earlier was just getting drugs into New York City. Correct. And also that you were in a position where you couldn't rely solely on your primary wholesaler. Maybe talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, correct. So our primary wholesaler could not meet our needs, our needs as well as other city hospitals as well. So daily we're on calls with other city hospitals that use, uh, we all use one of the big three wholesalers. And all the big three didn't have enough drug in New York City to meet the needs of the city during the pandemic. 
during the surge. So that was the issue. It was about getting, they had drug in their system, but not in the right places. So I think going forward, it would be ideal if the drug wholesalers were able to pivot and to transfer drug on a faster, quicker pace to meet the needs of the area that's surging. And Bavesh, what about you? I mean, you guys were hit pretty hard as well in Boston, and it looks like from what I saw today, you're back in the thick of it again. Tell us a little bit about your experience and some suggestions that you might have. Yep, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Nisha, and thank you for everyone for having me. I remember there was one day where we realized that we were in the surge when we had eight patients that we had to turn away to a neighboring institution, and our chief medical officer was like, this is where we are in a surge. And you know, I think the lessons that we learned in inventory management was that it's really important to have understanding of a dashboard type of model of COVID drugs. At that time, we didn't even know what drugs we really needed. We were basically throwing everything that we had and consuming things as fast as possible, same as Scott's group and everybody else. Now we have a better understanding of which drugs we need specifically. And I think one of the other things that we learned was connecting with our leadership who's tracking this very closely, knowing how many patients are on vent, how many patients are admitted in the ICU, how many patients are admitted in the medicine floors, how many patients are coming through the ED, what's the volume that's coming directly from ED to medicine floor, directly from ED to ICU. Having a run rate on that on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, really kind of help you kind of tie to what volume of drugs you will need. So I think creating that dashboard is going to be really helpful in the future as we're going through these types of surges. And then as Scott had mentioned, you know, the wholesalers could not keep up with the demand of what we were using. And of course, rightfully so, they had no idea what is actually used in this setting. So they were at a disadvantage of what type of inventory do they need to really keep. They were finding these things out as they were also getting the demand for asthma medications or antibiotics. And imagine there are a lot of publications that would come out where suddenly there is a publication about hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, and then everybody was kind of implementing that into practice. So that was also kind of causing a huge issue with inventory management. And of course, it translated into fluids and, and a lot of other downstream implications of administering the medications. So but we definitely learned a lot where working with wholesalers on how do we handle this in the future. We have a standing meeting of identifying future measures that we would have an implementation of procedures with our wholesaler to keep up with future surges. So I think really encouraging other institutions and vendors to work with institutions on kind of spearheading this as we were going through this in the second surges. Yeah, that's a really great suggestion. And Scott, related to, you know, you mentioned dashboards as well. Have you thought about this? Have you talked to your wholesalers how they can help support this? We actually had meetings with our wholesaler to actually talk about this, but we found that we needed to do it ourselves first, given the urgency of it all. And recently we had a call with other city hospitals as well, and everyone actually has been proactive independently and created their own dashboards and their own burn rates so they can keep track of what they'll need should a, should a second wave hit us in New York City. So I think everyone's talking to their wholesalers, but given the need to act quickly, they've been doing it independently. Okay. 
one of the other things that you guys brought up, and I can't remember, I think it was one of you, was related to the excess drugs. In the beginning, we were ordering everything we could think of or we could get our hands on. It seems like we were just ordering a lot of drugs. Bavesh already mentioned hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. But a lot of the stuff that we ordered up front, we found wasn't necessarily effective. What's happening with that drug that you guys have, drug supplies, whatever the case might be, I think you had mentioned some struggles with returns. Yes, that was me actually. So we had identified after the surge that we have this excess inventory and we didn't know how long the surge was going to last. So we have this inventory, which will probably expire by the time that we have another surge or maybe we may not. And so it's unfortunate because there are other states that are going through surges and institutions may be having a problem that we were having because everybody in that state is consuming a large amount and the wholesaler may not be able to keep up with that demand. And we could be helping those institutions by using our excess inventory. And there's no way that that type of system is available for us to share or sell drugs to another institution at the same price as they're getting it from the wholesaler that we work with. So it's unfortunate, but that's a challenging thing to see that you may actually have to waste all this drug. And because you're ordering directly from the manufacturer, there's no mechanism in place to return that drug. And that's one of the biggest challenges when you have shortages, and you can't get it from a wholesaler. You have to open up a direct account with the manufacturer. And then there's no return mechanism when you have that. Is that something that you, a recommendation that you take back to manufacturers? Yeah, absolutely. I think that this could be a great way for them to help support the COVID surges that are happening across the country, facilitating this inventory that you can shift from one institution to another and support the fight in COVID. So there's really two things then that you're suggesting. And then Scott, I want to give you the last word on this related to these things. So it's either finding a way to get it to other institutions or being able to return it sort of getting back to that sharing between hospitals and being able to be conscious about what's happening in other states and and help them out. What suggestions do you have back to the wholesalers and the manufacturers? This is a tricky thing. I don't know how much thought you guys have given to that, but any comments? So I guess it would be ideal if the wholesaler worked with those manufacturers, even though like, like we talked that the drug was received directly from the manufacturer. If there was some kind of partnership with the wholesaler and institution and the drug company to set up a a way to get the drug back to the wholesaler to get to one of their customers in an area that's surging. That would be ideal. And, you know, it would be, we try to make it so nobody would profit on it. It would all be even just cost across the board. Everyone's helping each other out. Right, right. We also talked about Epic offering this option of inventory system that they have at this time to support institutions in this type of surge situation. I I think it'd be great to have other vendors to come through where they can actually support some type of technology that can be utilized by institutions to help support them through the surges. Could be dashboards, it could be drug shortages, could be connecting inventory of drugs that are needed from one place to another, anything to actually facilitate management of inventory and doing surges. Okay, I want to move us on to the next topic, but I think the last thing that I'd say related to the discussions I've heard 
because I've been on the East Coast, I've been on the West Coast, and I've seen these regional differences in drug shortages even outside of the pandemic. But one of the things that I think it would be worthwhile taking back is everybody's working with their wholesalers, it sounds like, to improve things for the future. But what probably would be wise is advisory group or advisory boards where the wholesalers bring together large institutions from various parts of the country, because that's where this gets a lot trickier. And I think that'd be a great place to start brainstorming some of those solutions rather than trying to do everything regionally, because in this case, we really did need to get drugs to the other side of the country. So. Great idea. It's a great point. Yeah. So the next thing that I'd like to talk about is what we, I think, have termed unexpected outcomes. You know, we all worked really hard at all of the institutions to make all the changes necessary to help our patients avoid leaving their homes. So we looked at lengthening the time period between infusions. We looked at things that could be done at the home. We did remote patient counseling. We did telemedicine. There's a lot of things that we put in place that we thought were short-term and we did have payers supporting us and we were appreciative of that, the payers supporting the changes that we were making. But I think we got some unexpected outcomes from this related to now we're seeing not one, not two, but several payers who now want to make the site of care restrictions and home care. And when I specifically talk about site of care, I'm talking about site of care, not just outside the hospital, but even beyond physician practices, looking at some of these freestanding infusion centers that some of them are promoting, things are very different there. Things are also very different when a patient is at home receiving care. And again, we made concessions to support all of that while COVID was going on. But now we're seeing payers that want to make these changes permanent. So I'd like to talk a little bit about You know, we've seen ASCO, NCCN, COA all put out statements regarding specifically the home care infusion, which is concerning for different reasons, but they're both equally concerning. So I'd like to kind of spend the rest of the time that we have talking about that and really open it up to each of you to talk about what your concerns are. Why as oncology professionals do you believe that sites of care outside of a normal oncology practice or hospital-based center are dangerous. And the same would go for home care. So I'll open it up and start this one with you, Bhavesh. You know, I think I do have a lot of concerns around this. It was definitely something that we had kind of envisioned for a temporary measure, but it's becoming more of a permanent measure that we're seeing. And, and you know, I think one of the biggest concern I have is that you have non-oncology trained professionals managing patients in oncology where we have all these immunotherapies which are treat- used for over 50 different indications now. And there are unique side effects that oncology nurses or professionals are trained to identify and manage. It may not be apparent immediately But we know that some of these side effects are very long-term, like a patient can develop type 1 diabetes and we would require permanently discontinuing the drug, but there are signs and symptoms that need to be identified. And oncology nurses who are trained to manage these patients, even the disease-related side effects that these patients may have, and then the adjustments that need to happen from a supportive care perspective, from a 
therapeutic perspective, it's just going to get missed. And what's going to happen is that these patients may actually have more toxicities at the long run or may progress on their cancer faster because there's a significant change in their condition because of the secondary toxicities that we're having. And I think we'll see more poor outcomes. I don't want to take away all the thunder from Scott too, but I think I have some financial concerns too that I'll probably kind of get back to. Maybe Scott has some other points that he wanted to add to this. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so definitely I share, share all your concerns that you just mentioned. In addition to that, to me, it's, you know, it's all about safety like you talked about and not having oncology trained pharmacists and nurses. But the big concern is actually continuity of care, coordination of care, and that creating fragmented care when you move to the care outside of the primary oncology treatment center. You know, how does the prescriber order the medication? Are the ordering mechanisms added? Are they double checked to make sure the prescriber ordered the right medication at the right dose at the right time? How are the labs checked? How does that information get fed into a medication profile so the treating oncologists know the patient was ordered the drug, received the drug, didn't have any adverse events that happened? Did the patient get any pre-medication, post-medication? You know, education of the patient for follow-up care or aftercare. How does that all happen? So it's all about, besides the, the treatment nurses and the, and the level of training, it's also about the coordination of the whole patient's journey through the whole treatment. And bottom line is, besides all that, is the patient also comfortable? Is the patient well-educated enough to handle and basically be their own advocate and fill in the gaps or what the fragmented care causes? I think, Scott, you brought up a great point about coordination of care and visibility of what this patient is getting. I think I envision, let's say a patient gets admitted to the hospital inpatient side, home infusion companies' systems are not usually connected to the electronic bike record for inpatient or outpatient. So we have no way of knowing this patient was on ipilimumab or nivolumab or one of the PD-1s. And then how do we make that decision? I mean, it's just puzzling to me. And then kind of going into the more of the financial implications, you know, I think that as healthcare systems currently are facing a significant financial pressure due to COVID, and then now this actually adds another financial pressure where we're losing any revenue maintaining our infrastructure, our operations, our healthcare workers, basically taking that away. So now we're going to have to think about how do we offset that? And the only way I can think of is furloughing more providers. And here's the most important healthcare providers who are managing, you know, if you look at every single institution, the capacity and the in-person visit and cancer clinics had the highest volume because they have to see patients and taking away that revenue will be really hard to support that infrastructure of providers and nurses to maintain, especially with these financial pressures that we have. You know, not to also mention recently, there was a ruling against 340B institutions where now the government released more 340B cuts um, that proposing for FY21. So now there is actually even more financial pressures for these institutions that are serving disproportionate share patients, which are also hit the hardest uh, we know from COVID. 
Yeah, no, those are all great points. I think taking away the patient choice, knowing patients are so thoughtful about how they choose their cancer care and kind of taking that decision away from them is concerning the lack of the double checks, the trained personnel, all the things that we work so hard to have in place at our organizations, double checks at every step of the process, appropriately trained people being on site during the infusions and even following through the observation period. It's, it's something that we've all invested a lot of time and frankly money and resources into it. So I guess I'd like to spend the last few minutes just talking about what do we do? Because we've seen the professional societies all speaking out. I know many of the institutions, the large cancer centers have all independently written letters. Can pharma help us at all? Are there other thoughts that you guys have beyond what we're doing with professional societies and being vocal to the payers for our own organizations? Any other thoughts on that? I, I think, you know, I think pharma can tremendously help in this specific arena. The payers would need to have access to the medication. The home infusions they're contracted with would need to have access to these drugs in order to facilitate this set of care changes. So if pharma was to open those doors, then of course this would continue to happen. But if pharma was evaluating this very closely, like does this make sense from a clinical perspective? Is this the right thing to do for the customers that they have? And what is the long-term impact of this model that they would continue to foster? So if there was a block in access to these drugs to these home home infusion companies, I think that until we are aligned with how these patients should be managed, I think that would be a tremendous help. I agree. I agree. If pharma was able to limit the distribution and not allow it a certain drug to be distributed like to a specialty pharmacy that services a home care company, and that would be a big help. That's one example. Okay, great. And then the only one thing I wanted to leave us um, before we end is. What about the package insert? Sometimes that does specify site of care. As we see more drugs coming to market, what advice would you give manufacturers related to site of care? Bhavesh, you want to take that one? Yeah, I think, you know, having the option of the administration to be under a healthcare provider setting or home infusion or home care or self-administration does kind of dictate in terms of how these these therapies are administered. I think being more aligned with what we will be seeing in the future and how it will be impacting the drug, the patient, the healthcare provider, and the outcome, really kind of focusing on that perspective in the labeling would be more helpful. Thank you. Scott, I'll give you the last word here. Do you have anything you wanted to add about this? Yeah, so I think, you know, if before a drug could be given a home, I would think that, you know, pharma would have to do their studies at site of care because you don't know how safe it is. And you can't assume that because the drug is in a certain class and maybe a different drug in that class has been used in that site of care, that it's safe. So I think. Okay, great. Well, thank you both very much. We got in a lot of information in a very short period of time. I want to thank AVBCC for giving a voice to oncology pharmacy and providing us opportunity to voice our concerns. Thanks again. Well, gee, that was just great today. And thank you for joining. Thank you to our faculty and our panelists. 
as usual, great content and the sharing of information, usually important if we are going to improve access and the quality care that we're responsible for delivering along with change in this ecosystem. Like today, there'll be other and future webcasts. We cover all topics and all stakeholders. Stay tuned. Also, we post this on our website. It's very important that you can dial down and share with your colleagues. So we encourage you to do that. Additionally, if any of you have any comments, send them in through our website. If anyone would like to participate in speaking or has some other ideas, please share them with us. That's our mission. Thank you for joining Talk Again.